Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Merry Christmas, What's-Her-Name listeners, one and all. Merry Christmas. <laughs> I'm Katie Nelson. And I'm Olivia Mickle. And this is What's-Her-Name. Fascinating women you've never heard of. And at Christmas time, we like to do something a little bit different. In the spirit of this season of nostalgia and storytelling, we like to unearth women's memoirs of Christmas's past. Yeah. And... We have to dig surprisingly deep in a holiday world that's dominated by Charles Dickens, bless his heart, and, you know, Dylan Thomas. We are seeking out other voices to add to the mix. And when you look for them, you find them. Wonderful. So for our 50th episode of What's-Her-Name and our Christmas special, we bring you a reading of the memoir of Mary Donaldson Wilcox, the first child ever born in the White House in 1829. Her mother was Andrew Jackson's niece, and because he was a recent widower, she was de facto first lady. And so little Mary Donaldson was Andrew Jackson's grandniece, born and raised in the White House, and it seems like he loved her like a daughter. In fact, when he placed a time capsule in the cornerstone of the new treasury building, inside it, he placed a curl of her baby hair Aww. and a message to Congress. <laughs> and Mary Donaldson recalls a Christmas with the president steeped in joy and love. And this was 1835, when Christmas as we know it today was only just beginning to emerge. Dickens hadn't written a Christmas carol yet, <laughs> but Clement Clark Moore had anonymously published his Visit from St. Nicholas, or The Night Before Christmas. And so ideas about Santa Claus and gift-giving and stockings were starting to catch on all across America. Christmas was becoming a domestic holiday centered on children, even at the White House. So here we go. Santa Claus at the White House in Old Hickory's Day by Mary Donaldson Wilcox, read by our Olivia Mickle. Mist of the years, I recall a Merry Christmas in my childhood's home long ago. 
Sweeter than music across still waters come memories of the blessed people voicing in that historic mansion the glad tidings, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. The White House was, during President Jackson's occupancy, the model American home. Love, kindness, and charity guarding it like sentries. Happiness and contentment overshadowing it like angel wings. Known to the world as the man whose iron will and fierce, ungovernable temper defied opposition and courted antagonism, he was the gentlest, tenderest, most patient of men at his own fireside. His household included the family of his adopted son and my family, my father serving as his private secretary and my mother his niece. Loving and enjoying children, as childless old people often do, and never so happy as when giving happiness to others, he made life for us little ones, clustering around his knee as around in doting grandfathers, well worth living. Among the many bright incidents associated with that special Christmas so pleasantly remembered today were an East Room frolic and an unforgettable visit from Santa Claus. The invitations for the former, which was probably the most enjoyable and successful juvenile fate ever given at the National Capitol, read, The children of President Jackson's family request you to join them on Christmas Day at 4 o'clock p.m. in a frolic in the East Room. Washington, December 19, 1835. Delivering them, Selecting the games to be played and arranging other matters proved inexhaustible sources of fun, subordinate only to curiosity as to Santa Claus and his mysterious movements. His generosity on former occasions tempted us to expect great results from his next visit, and wondering whether he would come, if so, what he would bring us, how he looked and where he lived, we questioned the house servants and attendants, with whom we were favorite pets, and among whom were some most interesting personalities. Their answers, however, unlike the enchanted oracle in fairy lore, neither removing doubt nor confirming hope. Nanny, saucy and good-natured, fussy and domineering, as nursery autocrats generally are, and whom we both loved and feared, said, I wish to goodness you children would stop talking about old Cindy Claus. I'd laugh if, tired of roaming around nights filling stockings, he'd stay at home and roast chestnuts by his own fire. Jimmy O'Neill, our favorite usher and a typical son of Aaron, said, I could tell you lots about St. Patrick, but mighty little about Cindy Claus. I think, however, he and I must look alike, for Nanny always says when I make her a present, go away, Jimmy, you're as big a fool as Cindy Claus, always giving people things. We shook our heads. No, no, Jimmy, you're thin as a rail, and you have black scraggly hair, and a long sharp nose, and no beard, and everybody knows Santa Claus has to be fat and squatty, with a red face and a long white beard and wearing a big coat crammed with toys and goodies. 
Vivart, the French cook, whose toothsome sweets invested him with great importance in our eyes, and whom we waylaid on his morning visit to my mother, said, I know acquaint with Monsieur Sandiclaus. He no live in Paris. In my beautiful France across the blue sea, le petit enfant never ask questions, speak only when spoken to, then with modest curtsies and downcast eyes. Aha, chuckled Nanny. Mr. Vivart gives you a lesson in manners. Hans, the German gardener, whose stories about Rhine castles and Black Forest witches and fairies were even more relished than the fruit and flowers he brought upstairs every morning, said, I'm sure Kris Kringle will come. He might forget some children, but not Vitas ones. Though I think it's strange he does not hang his pretty things on a green tree instead of stuffing them in ugly stockings. How I wish you could see the beautiful trees which the boys and girls in Germany trim and light on Christmas Eve, and where they gather to sing songs, play games, and exchange presents. Heaven seems very near at those times. Your German trees may be lovely, Hans, said Carita, a Mexican embroideress occasionally employed by my mother. But they can't compare with fancy lamps which the Rio Grande Ninitos hang on poles and bushes near their homes on Christmas Eve, and beneath which they find the next morning the beautiful gifts left for them by the infant Jesus on his way from heaven to the Virgin's arms. She often told us stories of Mexican customs, and had just commenced one about the alcalde's daughter when Nanny called us to put on our wraps to go riding with the president, who wished us to meet him at the front door. Something like the divinity that doth hedge a king invested him in our eyes, and always granting, often anticipating, his wishes, we never dared oppose or disobey his orders. While waiting, George, the coachman, told us of some bad children who found in their Christmas stockings a bundle of peach tree switches wrapped in paper labeled, to be applied when spanking has proved insufficient. And he said he hoped we would fare better. Now, we had on several occasions come in close contact with peach tree switches, but we did not thank George for reminding us of the stinging experiences. To the orphan asylum, said the president on entering the carriage, in which there were several packages, and up in front was a basket of good things. He often drove there, taking me, cousin Rachel, and John along. The day, warm and bright, was more like May than December. The parks, then only grassy commons shaded by native trees, were still green, and the roses in the grounds adjoining all buildings were still in full bloom. The following conversation enlivened the ride. John. Uncle, the name we affectionately applied to him, did you ever see Santa Claus? The president, eyeing John curiously over his spectacles. No, my boy, I never did. John. Nanny thinks he'll not come tonight. Did you ever know him to behave that way? The president. We can only wait and see. I once knew a little boy who not only never heard of Christmas or Santa Claus, but never had a toy in his life. And after the death of his mother, a saintly woman had neither home nor friends. Chorus of children. Poor little fellow, 
Had he come to the White House, we would have shared our playthings with him. The children, quick to detect emotion, felt that some sad memory stirred the old man's heart, though we little suspected he was referring to his own desolate childhood. The president, after some moments' silence, said, The best way to secure happiness is to bestow it on others. And we'll begin our holiday by remembering the little ones who have no mothers or fathers to brighten life for them. To the sweet-faced matron who welcomed us, he said, Here I am with some Christmas cheer for your young charges. The children gathered in the reception room, and it was gratifying to see their faces light up as, greeting each one, he distributed his gifts. And even more gratifying was it to note his pleasure at their grateful surprise. Raising in his arms a crippled boy, he gave him a jumping jack, saying, Let's see how this works. And the delighted child cried, Ain't that cute? Hopping up and down just like an organ grinder's monkey. Returning home, we called at several houses to leave Christmas souvenirs sent by my mother and Mrs. Jackson. A package of snuff for Mrs. Madison, a hand-painted mirror for Mr. Van Buren, who was reputed to be on very good terms with his looking glass, and some embroidered handkerchiefs, Carita's handwork, for intimate friends. Registration is now open on What's-Her-Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. During President Jackson's incumbency, the White House family, children included, met at mealtime, breakfast being at 8 o'clock, dinner at 2, and supper at half-past 6. Mrs. Donaldson, my mother, sat at the head of the table, the president at the foot. We stood at our chairs until he asked a blessing, and at the close of meals were excused by a signal, a smile or a gesture, from my mother. Always serving the children first, saying they have better appetites, less patience, and should not be required to wait until their elders are helped. The president encouraged us to talk and ask questions, evidently enjoying our remarks. He often rose early and went with us to Jackson, now Lafayette, Square, for a game of mumble the peg, and occasionally, when supposed to be wrestling with state problems, he might have been found in our playroom soothing some childish grievance or joining in some impromptu romp. After supper, we began preparations for the all-important, eagerly anticipated event, hanging up our stockings. Uncle had invited us, overruling my mother's protest that we might disturb him, to use his room, and thither we merrily trooped, he leading and apparently deeply interested. We borrowed Nanny's stockings, and Cousin Rachel and Brother Jackson hung theirs to side hooks on the mantel, I mine to the fancy hearth broom, and John, who was a born artist, his to a boot jack carelessly left on uncle's green leather armchair. Two smaller stockings for the babies, my little sister and young cousin, dangled from curtain rings at the foot of the bed. 
surveying with delight the room after we had disposed of our stockings. We declared it reminded us of the Masonic Bazaar being held, which we had attended. Then Brother Jackson had a bright idea. Why not hang up a stocking for Uncle? And running to the bureau, he took a sock from the bottom drawer, tied it to the tongs, and cried, Now let's see how Santa Claus will treat you, Mr. Uncle Jackson, President of all these United States. Surprised and amazed, the old man said, Well, well, to think I've waited nearly 70 years to hang up a Christmas stocking. Better late than never, added Brother Jackson. We begged to be allowed to sit up to see Santa Claus come down the chimney and pass through the fire without scorching his bundles, declaring we were not sleepy and promising never to be naughty again. Then, when Nanny hustled us off, Nolens Volens, to bed, we vowed we'd lie awake all night, and still protesting, sank into tired childhood's dreamless slumber. About daybreak, Nanny's shrill voice calling, Christmas gift, you sleepyheads, awoke us, and amazed, indignant to find we had slept soundly after all, we sprang from bed and darted in our bare feet, unheeding her cries, Wait till you're dressed, you'll catch your death of cold, across the hall to Uncle's room and asked, Did Santa Claus come? See for yourselves, said he, opening his door. He was up and dressed, had a bright fire, and watched us tenderly as rushing in we seized our stockings, each one, his included, being well filled, and beneath them the presents we specially desired. For him a cob pipe, a pair of warm slippers, and a tobacco bag. For Brother Jackson, then eight years old and very mannish, a small gun, saddle, and bridle. For John, a hobby horse and drum. For me and Cousin Rachel, a doll and tea set each, and for the babies, toy rattles. Delighted, we voted Santa Claus to be the nicest old fellow in the world. See a child spring from bed early Christmas morning, grasp and examine its stocking, finding in it long-coveted, unlooked-for treasures, meanwhile imagining the fat, white-bearded old man crossing, like puss in boots, hill and dale, sea and lake, to bring it presents, bending, perchance, over its sleeping form to imprint a kiss, and then slipping away without waiting to be thanked? Can human fancy picture a more entrancing scene? When, in later years, does any moment yield more unalloyed bliss. Nanny, often provoking with her strict notions of nursery discipline, outdid herself that morning. For though we implored her to let us empty our stockings just to see if that lump in the toe was a dime or a quarter, she barbarously put them away, and rubbing, scrubbing, combing, curling, as if for dear life's sake, dressed us for breakfast. Below stairs, the halls, dining, and sitting rooms decorated with cedar and holly, the vases filled with flowers on tables and mantels, and huge logs blazing on the hearths, made a cheery, comforting scene. 
A bowl of foaming eggnog graced the sideboard, and on tables near were presents for each member of the household. Mrs. Donaldson occupied, while mistress of the White House, the second-story corner room facing Pennsylvania Avenue, using the one back of it as a nursery. In the former, three of her children, myself, John, and Rachel, credited at the time with being the first births in the executive mansion, were born. The president's adopted son and daughter occupied the two adjoining rooms, and he the central one. The playroom, belonging today to the official suite, was near the president's. His bed, a high, four-post carved mahogany with tester and heavy damask curtains, was reached by carpeted steps, which we children dearly loved to scamper up and down. When ill, we often carried him his meals, he reciprocating the attention when we were confined in bed. The author and sharer of most of our pleasures, he often shielded us from punishment when naughty, and my mother, once bewailing his overindulgence, quoted the Bible, Spare the rod and spoil the child. But he replied, I think, Emily, with all due deference to the good book, that love and patience are better disciplinarians than rods. We were permitted to spend the morning, and a blissful one it proved, in the playroom, where uncle, cousins Sarah and Andrew, my mother and father, and some playmates joined us and helped us unload our stockings, finding in each a silver quarter, fruit, candy, cakes, and nuts. Many of Cousin Rachel's presents were beautiful, and two of mine were so unique and pleasure-giving that after all these sad years, they still loom up shining milestones in childhood's sunny way. Madame Serrurier of the French Legation sent me a boy doll wearing the red brass-button jacket, gray gold-striped pants, plumed chapeau, spurs, and saber worn by French postillions. My godfather, the vice president, sent me a miniature cooking stove with a spirit lamp ready to light. I had had many handsome dolls, but never a boy doll before, and like other foolish mothers welcoming a son after a succession of disappointing daughters, I clasped him in my arms and crowned him lord and master of my heart. Wherever I went for weeks, someone would ask, Mary, how's your boy? Lighting the lamp in the toy stove, we boiled water in the tiny kettle and popped corn in the oven, shouting gleefully when the kettle sang and the corn executed its staccato dance, occasionally giving us a hot smack in the face or hands. Not the least of that happy day's diversions was making our toilettes for the afternoon fit and it was amusing to see the high and mighty airs Nanny assumed on the occasion, changing a bow here, supplying a pin there, arranging plaits, ruffles, and puffs. Then, when she had finished dressing us, surveying her work as an artist might a completed chef dœuvre We wore the costumes presented to us by our parents as Christmas gifts. Cousin Rachel, who was pretty and graceful, a pink cashmere, I a blue one. We both wore silk clock stockings with kid slippers. John was gorgeous in a highland plaid suit, and Brother Jackson, who was tall, erect, and handsome, gave promise, in a brass button jacket, of the gallant officer he afterwards became. 
Miss Cora Livingston, who kindly volunteered to chaperone the frolic, came about four and led the way to the East Room, which was tastefully decorated with evergreens and flowering plants. Our guests arrived promptly, and meeting them at the door, we kissed the girls and shook hands with the boys. The former wore light colors, the latter their smartest suits, all making a brave showing. Baroness Crudner, Madame's Hugens, and Sir Edward Vaughan joined the president and members of his family in the Red Room and served as spectators of a novel and delightful entertainment. We played Blind Man's Bluff, Hide and Seek, Puss in the Corner, and several juvenile forfeit games, all entered into with zest and thoroughly enjoyed, the East Room proving an ideal playground and the players, free and unrestrained as if on a Texas prairie, romping, scampering, shouting, laughing in all the exuberance of childish merrymaking. Mr. Van Buren and Miss Cora joined in and added greatly to their success. Mr. Van Buren, having incurred a penalty in a forfeit game, was sentenced to stand on one leg and say, Here I stand, all ragged and dirty. If you don't come kiss me, I'll run like a turkey and no kiss being volunteered, he strutted like a game gobbler across the room amid peals of laughter. With one exception, the penalties incurred by the children were bravely paid. But I, small and shy, and known to have a sweet voice, was sentenced to sing A Paper of Pins. I hung my head shyly, whispering, I'd rather dance than sing. Then, when led out to dance, I burst out crying, sobbing, I don't want to sing or dance. Please let me alone. And Miss Cora, taking me on her lap, said, All right, Mary, I'll pay your forfeit, and sang very sweetly, I'll give to you a paper of pins if that's the way that love begins. If you will marry, 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 marry me. About six o'clock, the dining room was opened, displaying a picture of surpassing beauty, one that the four seasons and field, forest, and lake had united in embellishing. The band, stationed in the corner, struck up the President's March, and Miss Cora, forming us in line, the younger couples leading, marshaled us into supper. The scene of many historic banquets, commemorating great events and shared by worldwide celebrities, that famous room never witnessed one in which the decorator's art or the confectioner's skill achieved greater triumphs. Vivart hailed as Napoleon of cooks, master chef de cuisine, wizard, magician, received hearty congratulations on all sides. In the center of a Maltese cross-shaped table towered a pyramid of snowballs, interspersed with colored icicles and surmounted by a gilt gamecock, head erect, wings outspread. At the upright ends of the cross were dishes of frozen marvels. At the top, one representing iced fruits, oranges, apples, pears, peaches, grapes. At the bottom, one representing iced vegetables, corn, carrots, beans, squashes. At one transverse end was a tiny frosted pine tree, beneath which huddled a group of toy animals. At the other, a miniature reindeer stood in a plateau of water in which disported a number of goldfish. 
There were candies, cakes, confections of every conceivable design, delicious viands, relishes, and beverages. Though almost transfixed with admiring delight, we did ample justice to the tempting repast and eagerly accepted the lovely ornaments given to us as souvenirs. After supper, the central pyramid was demolished, and the snowballs, which were made of non-combustible starch-coated cotton, each one enclosing a French pop kiss, were distributed to us, and we were invited to play snowball in the East Room, an invitation the more joyfully hailed because winter having been exceptionally mild, we had been debarred our usual snowball games. The balls striking exploded and for some moments the East Room was the scene of an exciting snow flurry, with the startling addition of the thunder and lightning characteristic of summer storms. The President, Mrs. Madison, and other elderly guests who had watched the game from the southern end of the room, heartily sharing and enjoying the children's merriment, were spared. But the players, pelting each other unmercifully, looked like snow-entrapped wayfarers. It was great fun to see them dodging the balls and to hear them scream when struck, though the balls, being soft and light, caused no bruises and inflicted no damage on clothes or furniture. The game, exhilarating and inspiring, was provokingly brief, the supply of snowballs soon being exhausted. Then the escorts sent for the children arrived and Miss Cora, giving us quietly some instructions, reformed us in line as at supper. The band played a lively air, and we marched several times around the room. The last time, bowing to the group at the upper end, we paused before the president, and kissing our hands to him said, Good night, General, he smiling and bowing in return. What a beautiful sight, said Mrs. Madison. It reminds me of the fairy procession in Midsummer Night's Dream. It recalls to me, madam, said the president, the words, Suffer little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. for your support of another great year of What's Her Name podcast. Music for this episode was provided by Aaron Kenny, Doug Maxwell, Kevin McLeod, Twin Musicom, and Fiddlesticks. You can find links to all this music and an antique copy of Mary Donaldson Wilcox's book on our website, whatshernamepodcast.com. Wishing you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Thanks for donating. Thanks for listening. <laughs>